0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. So we now come to a time of scripture reading, and today we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15. So now invite our scripture reader up to read from 1 Samuel chapter 15.
1: Okay, so um, this is from 1 Samuel, chapter 15. Uh, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Tulem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Canaanites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Hevelah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and, his, and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this? knowing of cattle that I hear. Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, which war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to be one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites." Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of love.
0: Uh, thank you, Sister Sammy, for the scripture reading. Let me now invite uh, Pastor Nicholas up to give us the talk for today.
2: Good afternoon, friends. Our passage today is is a long passage, it's from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 15. It's a long passage, so let me pray and ask God for help to understand his word. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may obey your will, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so when one of my family holidays, uh, we were watching a baking competition on TV. So in this episode, uh, uh, each pair of contestants they had to bake an edible cake boat that can sail through a six-meter obstacle course under 45 seconds. Okay, so there's a lot of things going on. So so, so all of them big boats. Uh, some of the boats looked great. Some of them uh, were pirate themed. Some had lots of chocolate. Uh, But once they went into the water, many of them sunk. I remember one contestant you see before her, uh, many boats had already sunk and when it was her turn, she wasn't sure whether hers would sink. She put her boat into the water and then it floated. And she was so excited, she was so happy, she was jumping for joy. She was so excited that she forgot to take the remote control to steer her boat through the obstacle course. And so her her book got stuck, and she failed. So for her, uh, in, this, in this scenario, success isn't well baking a cake that looks great, tastes great. Success is actually baking a cake that looks great, tastes great, and can get through the obstacle course. I read this book uh, by Rico Theis, uh called Faithful Leaders. Rico Theis is a pastor in the UK. He's the person behind uh, Christianity. he <laughs> materials that we use at church. Now, Rico Tice says, failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. Failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. Now, I found this to be true in my my own life. Now, there's one time uh, I had exams. I know a lot of you here are students, Uh, you all have exams. my strategy, my friends and I, what we like to do is, before the exam, we would just cram as much information in our head as possible, uh, we have used all the study strategies, have all the acronyms on the different points, I don't know, I think, I think there's an acronym for rainbow, I can't remember that, so that kind of thing. Yeah, so we, we would cram all that, so that on the exam day, we just vomit out, on, using our hand, everything that we have learned. And... Our handwriting, I tell you, is horrendous. But I have one friend, one friend, one classmate, what he did during his exam is he was slowly inscribing each letter on the paper. Such that I think if after the exam, the teacher could actually frame up the the exam script. His handwriting was perfect. But because he did that, he didn't have he didn't write enough for his exam, he didn't do well. And the examiner even threatened to deduct marks next time he did that. So successful in handwriting, but that doesn't matter. That's true in our lives, but that's also true in our relationship with God. You see, sometimes it's easy to be successful in the things that don't matter. It's easy to be successful in the things that other people can see. Or keep coming to church, or keep coming to a small group, or serve in different ministries during the week, we are failing in our godliness. Or maybe you feel that there's this persistent sin uh, that refuses uh, to let you go. Or maybe you see your sin that keeps letting other people down. So, Is there a hope for us who keep succeeding in the things that don't matter? Is there hope for us who keep failing? Our passage today says, yes, there is hope. There is hope for us in King Jesus. What our passage is doing is today is that it compares uh, King Saul to King Jesus. So we see how bad King Saul is, and this helps us appreciate how good Jesus is. Such as the foul stench of King Saul's sin will help us appreciate the pleasant aroma of King Jesus' righteousness even more. And I hope that at the end of, of today's talk, we will thank God for King Jesus. Okay, the slides will be up in a while, but in the meantime, you can listen uh, carefully to what the text says. So we are going to look at chapter 13, verse 1 to 15. So it, this is my first point, the folly of the king. The folly of the king, chapter 13, verse 1 to 15. Now, a passage in chapter 13 transports us back in time to the time of Israel's first king, Saul. Now, king Saul was the one that God and his people chose to be king. And he's supposed to defeat uh, the Philistine people. He's supposed to defeat the enemy. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me a few pages back to chapter 9, uh, verse 16. 1 Samuel, chapter 9, verse 16. Okay, this is what uh, God says. About this time tomorrow, I will, send to you, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over, over my people Israel. And this is, the, this is the line I was going for he will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Now at this point, the Philistine army had invaded and had occupied uh, Israel. Oh, that's up. Okay, let's go. Can I do this? Okay, yes. The folly of the king. So at this point, uh, the Philistines had invaded and, attacked, uh, inv- invaded and occupied Israel. In chapter 13, verse 2, you see that ah, Saul has, how many men? Saul has 3,000 men 2,000 with him at this place called Mi'mash, 1,000 with his son Jonathan at Gibeah and in verse 13 it's Jonathan with his 1,000 men that drew first blood they attacked a Philistine outpost uh, in the, okay, in the Phil- attack a Philistine outpost in, his, in Israel's territory and the Philistines they did not take lightly to this insult, so they respond with a show of force So in chapter 13, verse 5, this is how big their army is. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Chariots, they are fast, they are deadly. The 6,000 charioteers on 3,000 chariots could charge at you and drive an arrow deep into your chest before you could defend yourself. And somehow, if somehow you managed to survive the chariots, then behind them were soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore, all desperate to see their, their swords, crimson red with the blood of Israelites to avenge their fallen outpost. So that's how they react. And the Israelites, they see this and they scatter. Verse 6. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among rocks in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan, the land of Gad and Gilead, to get away from the fight, as far away from the fight as possible. And those who remained, they're trembling. Morale was low. The Philistines were ready to wipe Israel off the map, to obliterate Israel's first monarch. Who could save them? If you have been following us through the series in one Samuel, you realise that God, Israel's God, had saved them. You see, Israel's God brought death and destruction in, in Philistine territory when they thought they conquered him and brought his ark, the symbol of his presence, into their, into their midst. And after that, God brought thunder and, to, and caused panic among the Philistines such that the Israelites could easily defeat them. Now, passage today, God's plan for Samuel was to wait seven days, for Saul to wait seven days for God's prophet Samuel. And Samuel will offer the sacrifices to God and God will be pleased and the Israelites will defeat the innumerable bloodthirsty Philistines. Except this time, it seems that Samuel was late. It's already day seven and he's not here. I wonder if you understand how Saul felt. Every morning he would have fewer and fewer troops. Every morning he realised There's no Samuel. And the Philistine army is just there. You can hear them shouting every morning. It's getting harder to trust God with each passing day. That Israel desperately needed God's blessing. Israel needed a morale boost. So what did Saul do? Saul did the foolish thing. Verse 9. This is what he did. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Saul offered up the burnt offering when he was supposed to be Samuel. And unfortunately, just as he offered up those offerings, Samuel arrived. And this is Samuel's verdict in verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established a kingdom over Israel for all time. Saul foolishly thought he saved the kingdom by offering up the sacrifices, by bringing God's blessing on them. But his foolish solution cost him the kingdom. So his descendants, his children, will never rule Israel. But you might think, hey, did God overreact? Oh yes, Saul did disobey, but the situation was desperate. He was forced to do it. Well, he wasn't forced to do it. The seventh day hasn't ended yet. And this this is serious because of what we learned last week. So this is what God said uh, through Samuel. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. For Israel, for the king, if they disobey God, this passage says in verse 15, God's hand will be against him. That same hand that defeated the Philistines will be defeating Israel. So when Saul disobeys Israel, there are serious consequences. Saul wanted to bend God's word a little bit to fix a difficult situation. But what he did is, he broke God's word. Instead of bring a solution, he brought a curse on God's people. Instead, Saul was successful in knowing that the sacrifice had to be offered, but he failed to wait for Samuel to do it. And we can be like Saul; See, we can be successful in knowing what God tells us in the Bible, but sometimes trusting God is difficult, just like with Saul. Sometimes we rather break God's word when it's difficult, when it becomes costly when we have to give up something. When that happens, well, knowing God's word really doesn't matter. You see, what matters is about trusting, relying on God's word, relying on what God has said. You see, we need to be successful in the things that matter, in knowing and in trusting God's word. Otherwise, we will be foolish like King Saul. That's the folly of the king. So next we'll see, the pride of the king. Now, this pride has two sides. So, one side of the pride is when uh, the people we trust are weak, and the other side of, is when people we trust are strong. So, we look at the weakness first. So, Israel in our passage is weak. So, look at chapter 13, verse 15. You can see how many men they had left. So, around 3,000 just now in verse 2. Now, in verse 15, they have 600. And 600 Israelites versus verse 5, the innumerable Philistines. And how many weapons did they have? Verse 22. So in the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his his hand. Only Saul and Jonathan had them. Only two people with weapons against an army armed to the teeth. Saul could not trust his weak forces. Okay, so his weakness, the weakness led him to fearful inaction. In chapter 14, verse 2, what was he doing? Chapter 14, verse 2, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. That's all he was doing, he was under a tree with his 600 men. He doesn't know what to do. And what does Jonathan do? Jonathan is on the same side, and it's him and his armor bearer, chapter 14, verse 1, they went searching for a Philistine outpost. And somehow, in chapter 14, verse 14, they defeated the outpost. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So Jonathan, was, Jonathan and his armor bearer, two people against 20. And the, the, the team with two people won. Now, why is it that Jonathan, in his weakness, could win, could fight and win, whereas Saul, also in weakness, hid? What's the difference? The difference is this. Jonathan had faith. Jonathan trusted in God. Jonathan saw with the eyes of faith. Look at chapter 14, verse 6. This is what Jonathan says about his situation. Jonathan said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. The difference between the Israelites and Philistines here is the Philistines are uncircumcised. What this means is the Philistines are not God's people. God is not on the Philistines' side. God is on Israel's side, even though Israel only has two, Jonathan and his armour bearer. And the Lord can save by few. And that's what happens in chapter 14, verse 23. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. The Lord saved Israel. He could save with many, but he saved with few. He saved with Jonathan. He saved with Jonathan because Jonathan trusted in the Lord. Not like Saul, who was under the pomegranate tree because the people he trusted in, because he himself, were were too weak. Saul should have trusted in the Lord who saves by many or by few. Now this is relevant for us today. See, John Knox was a preacher in in Scotland many years ago. And this was a time when it is dangerous, it's illegal to be a pastor in some parts of the world. As it is today. So this is what he said. One man with God is always in the majority. One man with God is always in the majority. Saul must learn from Jonathan. Saul must learn to trust God with few. You and I need to learn that too. You see, society, the world outside, seems stronger than us. So trusting in God's word is difficult. Trusting in God's word to share the gospel is hard. Or Sometimes we are too weak to live out the gospel in the world. Tell others about Jesus or just to live it out for ourselves. So we are, we behave like Saul, we have fearful inaction. remember, one man or one woman with God is always in the majority. Or in Jonathan's words, verse chapter 14, verse 6: nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Since the Lord is already working to save, but the best thing for us to do is to join him. Since the Lord is working in us to be more like Jesus, the best thing we can do is to join him, to live out the gospel, to tell others about Jesus. Our pride sometimes trips us up when we are weak. Now pride trips us up when we are strong. Strength can lead to arrogant action. In chapter 14, verse 24, Israel is starting to win. But this small victory led to Saul's arrogant actions to trouble Israel. Okay, so there, there's a few ways that Saul troubled Israel. So first is, he spares the enemy. So expect verse 24 to start with, now, the Philistines were in distress that day. But That's not what it says. Verse 24 says, now the Israelites were in distress that day. So what happened in verse 24 is, Saul proudly forced the people not to eat during the battle. So he cannot eat until evening when the Philistines should have been defeated. I remember the first time I ate combat rations in the army. Now combat rations are these packets of food that we can eat uh, on the go, uh, in in training or in battle. Now we tore open the packets, we squeezed out the spaghetti or uh, chicken mushroom rice, now, uh, I, at that point, I used to cook at home and my cooking was horrible. So when I tasted the combat rations, I thought it was excellent. So I told my friends, hey, this is great stuff. While well, my friends were all gagging. Now The army ensures that the, if, you, if you are carrying the, the, the fuel pack, it ensures that you have enough food for 24 hours. Then each packet has enough nutrition to last you one meal. So that you have enough energy for training, for the battle. Whether we like it or not is really another matter. Because if we didn't eat in a long battle, we have no energy to fight. But Saul, maybe he didn't want anyone to celebrate before they won. Or maybe uh, Saul didn't want anyone to slow down the progress by stopping to cook some, cook some food. But here, uh, Saul scored an own goal. You see, Saul distressed his army by forcing them not to eat. So his army was ineffective. This is what Jonathan says in verse 29. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from the enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? So Saul, by starving the army, well, he, he gave the advantage to the enemies. The enemies are spared. In last week's passage, Israel wanted a king to fight their battles for them, to win their enemies. But here, King Saul is helping the enemy get away. So strength leads to arrogant action. Next, when the king is proud, the king leads Israel into sin. i top that. Saul calls the people to sin. You see, the people got so hungry because of this silly vow that when evening came, they just slaughtered the animals and ate the animals without draining the blood. A God had commanded his people not to eat food with blood, but the people were so hungry because of the oath that they couldn't wait. They engorged themselves on fresh steak and mutton sashimi with blood still dripping from them. And in that way, they sinned against the Lord. Why did they do that? Why did they sin against the God in this way? Because, because of their proud king Saul. Because their proud king Saul forced this silly oath on them. If a king is bad, you lead the people into sin. And we read this just now, but from the middle, from the middle of this passage again, let me, let's, let, me, let's, let me remind you how serious this is. But if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Saul had doomed Israel by his actions. He caused them to disobey and potentially bring on God's judgment. So a proud king spares his enemies. A proud king brings Israel to sin and and potentially brings God's judgment. Thirdly, a proud king is shamed. So Saul realizes that Jonathan ate the honey. So in verse 44, he makes another silly vow. Verse 44, may the Lord Saul said, may, the, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. So he swear that he would kill Jonathan for the crime of eating honey. Yeah, that's that's too severe and that's and that's wrong. And so the people, in verse 45, they rightly stopped Saul. And they stopped Saul because they all knew that God was the one who saved Israel uh, through Jonathan. So verse 45. But the, Lord said, the man said to Saul, Should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the people were on the right, the king was in the wrong, and the people rightly shamed their king. They know what's the right thing to do. Not the king. And in this passage, it seems that everyone seems to know that, that God saved Israel through Jonathan. I'm not sure how Saul forgot. The king is shamed. And that's not all. You see, verse 46 to 51 looks like a, a list of Saul's successfully He defeated this enemy, that enemy. He had lots of children. But verse 52 ends on a very negative note. It brings another point of shame to him. All the, days, this verse 52, all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw, saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Saul failed to defeat the Philistines in today's passage. Therefore, Saul will always face the Philistines throughout his life. At the end of 1 Samuel, they will even kill Saul. So in our section today, Saul was successful in trying to get his army to pursue the Philistines. But he failed to trust God. That's why his strength led to arrogant action. He spared his enemies by starving Israel. He was forced to backtrack on his foolish oath. And he caused Israel to sin. So today we have seen the folly of the king, the pride of the king. Next we'll see the rebellion of the king. If to understand what to understand Saul's rebellion, we have to understand uh, what God commanded Saul to do. So verse, chapter 15, uh, verse 1, and verse 1 and 2, God commanded Saul to kill all the Amalekites. In verse 3. Now go attack the Amalekites and they totally destroy all that belongs to them. Now what do the Amalekites do? So they have persisted, persistently opposed God and his people. Okay, so verse two talks about something. So verse two says, "I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt." What happened is that as Israel is coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites they came to attack Israel, and they didn't attack the front of the army. Okay, so the uh, Deuteronomy will tell us they actually attacked from the back of the army of the troops, and who is at the back? The weak, the old. The children the women that's despicable and that's not all you see they didn't just attack israel at this point they, they continue to oppose god uh, in, in how they treated the rest of the rest of their neighbors so in chapter 15 verse 33 this is what samuel says as your this is about uh, the king agak as your sword has made wom- women childless so the people were known to be violent to kill others so when God commands, them, commands Israel to kill all the, all the Amalekites, this wasn't ethnic cleansing. This is God's judgment on a persistently rebellious and evil nation. And Saul obeyed. Well, mostly. See, in verse 9, he spared King Agag, and he spared the best of the livestock. So yes, Saul was successful in battle, but he wasn't successful where it mattered most. He wasn't successful in fully obeying God. God said destroy everything, God. But Saul decided to spare some things. So God sent His prophet Samuel to confront Saul. And Saul made excuses after excuses. I wonder whether you were shocked in verse thirteen. So when Samuel came to Saul, this is what Saul said. The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Saul just disobeyed God, but yet he had the audacity to use God's name twice. How blind he was to think that he carried out the Lord's instructions, that he still had this relationship with God. So Samuel challenged Saul in verse 14. What then is this beating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul protested his innocence, and he blamed the people. So verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Samuel. Saul said. I went on a mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of was devoted to, the, to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. At Gilgal. The Saul said, I obeyed. I didn't disobey. It's them. They wanted to the sacrifice to the Lord. They kept the animals to worship God, to honor your God. He excused himself, put the blame somewhere else, just like Adam blaming Eve, just like Eve blaming the snake. Unfortunately, when Saul, when Saul was speaking, he, he admitted that he spared King Agag. So Samuel was having none of his rubbish excuses. The verse 22, Samuel replied, Does a king delight in offerings and sacrifices, as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, to heed better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance is evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. To obey is better than sacrifice. Because, this passage says, when we disobey the true God, it's as if we are worshipping Id- idols. It's, the, it's like the evil of worshipping idols. Rebellion against the true God. And because Saul has re- rebelliously rejected God, God has rejected Saul as king. Well, you might think if after, at this point, well, Saul might finally stop making his excuses and in verse 24 he confesses sin. But if you look closely in verse 24, that's not really what's going on. So in verse 24, he admits to violating the Lord's commands and, instructions, and Samuel's instructions. But he has an another excuse. I was afraid of the men. So I gave him to them. Now this isn't genuine. Like, Saul is the king, not the people. And that's not that's not all. see. verse 25, he wanted God to forgive him so that he can he have Samuel go back with him. He wants... Power. He cannot have a legitimate power because God has rejected him as king, but he wants Saul to go back with him so that when he worships before the people, uh, everyone, can, everyone can see, oh, he and Saul, as he and Samuel are still together. He doesn't want to lose face. So God pointed out his rebellion and Saul gave excuses after excuses after excuses. And when those don't work, he gave a apology to try to save face before other people now you and I can identify with that you see the Bible points out our sin but we struggle to own our sin you might say to God yes I'm sorry for my sin but he made me do it she made me do it they started it we want to save face before others but we sin but we don't want others to think of us as sinners we don't want ourselves to think of us as sinners now friends there is freedom for us in Jesus Christ. For those of us who believe in Jesus, we know that God knows our sin. There's no need to hide. And that's not all. For all the sins that, all the sins that we have done, past, present, future, when we believe in Jesus, Jesus has taken them all. Jesus died on the cross for us. So before others, there's no need for us to be. There's no need to be ashamed. No need to be ashamed of our sin. Because God's word has revealed not just we have sinned. Everyone has sinned. And we all need Jesus to save us. You might have thought uh, at this point in verse 30, Saul is really repentant and goes back and worships God. And maybe he'll repent immediately and for the future. So immediately maybe he'll order order the people to kill all the animals and kill Agag. And maybe for the future, he'll, he'll keep trusting God's word through Samuel and prepare the way for the next king. But that's not, that's not what happens. You see, in verse 31, what does Saul go to do? Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord to keep up the show of being religious. Uh, another thing that doesn't matter, but Saul chose to do. I wonder whether, he, I wonder whether Saul remembered what, what Samuel said when he was bowing down and, and, and singing praises to God. I wonder whether Saul remembered that Obedience is better than sacrifice. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. I don't know, but it seems like he forgot. Because while Saul was worshipping God, in verse 33, it's Samuel who kills Agag, not Saul. And what about the future? In verse 35, for their future, Saul never went to see Samuel until Samuel died. Even though in in the passage there, verse 35, in verse 34, Ramah and Gibeah, where, the, where both of them are, they are very close to one another. Saul never saw Samuel, never sought the Lord through Samuel. But Saul remained unrepentant. Saul rebelled against, the God, against God, gave excuses when he was caught. Even after caught he didn't repent. This is not the king we need. We need a better king. In chapter 15, verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. We need a better king than Saul. A king who is successful in the things that matter. A king who obeys God. And the good news is, we have that king. We have that better king. That better king is King Jesus. Jesus is successful in the the things that matter. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, he says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Verse 7 says, King Jesus came to do God's will. King Jesus fully obeyed God's will. God's will for Jesus to die on the cross, to take away our sin. And because of that, a few verses down in verse 10, because and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because Jesus was obedient, there is help for us who will rebel against God. That's a way sinners can be made holy. That is through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is successful at things that matter, and Jesus helps us when we don't obey. We all need Jesus' help. We all disobey God. And sin wrecks our relationships. Our relationships with one another, with God, are all in a mess. We can't help ourselves. We have tried to be our king like Saul. Perhaps we have made promises to God like Saul, Saul, to ourselves, to other people, that this, whatever this is, this is the last time. Only to break them and add to our guilt. Or perhaps we try to fix our sin ourselves by our own arrogant action until the problem exceeds our ability and what is left is fearful inaction. Jesus died for us who fail. So people who succeed in the things that don't matter. And because Jesus died for us, uh, God forgives us for for our sins. We only need to trust and rely on Jesus to take our sins. And that's not all. See, Jesus also helps us to obey. We saw in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Jesus has given us everything we need to obey God. Live the godly life. Now, we won't get get it all straight away, but Jesus is growing in us. He's just growing us to obey God better. As we read the Bible more, we know God more, as we understand him more. So praise God that we have the better king, King Jesus. King Jesus who who is successful in the things that matter. King Jesus who helps us when we don't obey. King Jesus who helps us to obey. Let's pray. Now, to the one who, by the power at work within us, is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. To God be glory in the Church and Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
0: For the sermon, uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go through the reflection discussion because we're also going to have communion today. So uh, you can take a picture of the following questions. Number one, in what ways might we succeed in the things that don't matter to God? And number two, why is Jesus the better King? Uh, Questions worth thinking and reflecting on. I encourage you to discuss this uh, with the church community over lunch or throughout the week as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.